Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 63, True Perception. Is our understanding of eternal life too small? What does the word beginning really mean? And how would things change if we looked at the world around us with our spiritual eyes? All that and more in the first four verses of 1 John. Hello again, everyone. We are on episode three of our journey through 1 John. John wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, we're spending time today on, on his prologue. We're going to be talking all this session on just four verses. Um, let me just talk to you a little bit about the prologue. This is one of the, of the great beginnings passages in all of the Bible. Obviously, the first one is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Mark 1.1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and now in 1 John, he reveals the incarnate Lord, the Son who became human. I want to make a few points by way of introduction before we dig deeper. The incarnation is the foundation for John's entire letter. Um, it is perhaps the single most important point that John is making. He wants us to know the, the word of life, as he calls Jesus, the word of life who invaded space and time, who makes it possible for us to have fellowship with eternal intimacy with God. <clears throat> Pardon me. The next point I want us to notice is that this is a very unusual way to begin a letter. There's no greeting. There's no audience indicated. There's no author stated. There's no mention of, of where he's writing from or where this is going. This runs completely contrary to the normal opening for any letter in, in the, the Roman world. As a result, some people think that this was not really meant to be a letter so much as a written sermon to be read. Everything John goes on to write in the rest of this letter is based on the historical and the spiritual realities expressed in these first four verses. It's important to read the prologue carefully and slowly because it establishes the foundation for the entire letter, which is why we're going to go through it pretty slowly today. John wants us to know rightly Jesus Christ, who invaded space and time and who makes it possible for us to have eternal intimacy with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of this, he establishes two important truths about Jesus right from the beginning. Firstly, he is divine. Quoting from the first verse, he is that which was from the beginning and the eternal life which was with the Father. He has always existed with, uh, uh, with the Father, and he's existed as God. There's never been a time when the Son was not. He was before the beginning, he was in the beginning, and he's from the beginning. We're going to look at this more deeply in a few minutes. But the second point that John is emphasizing, not only is he fully God, is he divine, he is completely human. John declares with great emphasis the true and genuine humanity of Jesus. The last thing I want us to see by way of introduction is that verses 1 to 4 are actually one long, incredibly complex sentence. It's, it's the most complex single sentence in all of John's writing. And I think even the way he starts it with this complexity, it, it points to the mystery of Christ, uh, the mystery of Christ and the Trinity. If you missed weeks one and two, I encourage you to go back and have a listen because they really laid a foundation for how this letter was structured. Well, now let's jump in. John, 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, 
that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. (coughs) Excuse me. John is intentionally echoing what he has written in the prologue to his gospel. He is saying that we can go back into time as far as our minds will allow us to imagine, even go before time, and Jesus was there. Jesus always existed with the Father. Well, I think one of the ways to unwrap these two verses is to look at some of the key words. First uh, John uh, it draws upon John's gospel throughout this entire letter. And this is especially true in the way John opens this letter. Do you know there's 14 references to John's gospel, uh, uh, to the prologue in the first four verses? So let's look at some of these words. The first one, and it's easy to skip over this, is which. In Greek, that's hos. H-O-S, and it's used four times in the first verse. Why would he do that? Well, let's have a look. From the first words of John's prologue, we need to pay close attention. He's calling us in to, as it were, turn the microscope up. We need to pay attention to every word, every phrase, because they all have a precise purpose. Which is is a neuter. It's a neuter pronoun. And it's instead of what we would expect, the masculine pronoun of who. You know, it'll become clear in verse 3, but John is speaking about Jesus Christ. So why this neuter pronoun? First of all, like the gospel prologue, John is purposely being somewhat mysterious by being a little bit ambiguous. He's making us think right from the beginning. He is signaling that we are headed into a deep mystery here. And and a second reason, I think, for using this pronoun, which, the subject is being progressively revealed through this prologue. From the beginning, John's wording draws us in. This is, again, part of the parallel with the Gospel of John's prologue, because it also begins with some ambiguity. In the beginning was the word. Then it only becomes clear by the time they get to verse 14 in the the Gospel prologue. This is what John is doing with us here. What's the second key word? And it's huge. That is beginning. Arche. A-R-C-H-E. Arche is a really, really important word in the Greek. St. Augustine wrote this about, about this verse. Eternity is the very substance of our God. I love that quote. From the beginning is used eight times in 1 John and two times in 2 John. It's used in connection with the word of life. It denotes the gospel as it was first heard by John's churches. He's saying from the beginning of what you heard, this is what you've always heard. But it also refers to Christ, the one who was from the beginning. It's used in chapter 3, verse 8, in connection with the devil, who's described as sinning from the arche, from the beginning. And it's used most frequently in the command to love one another. Now, We have here, in this phrase, one of several what are called relative clauses, forgive me, I used to teach English literature a lifetime ago, that describe the word of life. And and so, as I've looked at it, different scholars see several different possibilities for for what John is referring to with, with this, that which was in the beginning. The first is the pre-existence of the Son. This echoes the Gospel's prologue. Another possibility is the beginning of a Christian's life at conversion. Another is the beginning 
of God's redemptive work in human history, what we call salvation history. Another possibility is the beginning uh, of the gospel. This is what he's talking about, the beginning of the gospel, and that refers to both the birth of Jesus, Jesus' public ministry, uh, the beginning of preaching of the gospel after Jesus' resurrection. Now, these possibilities are not mutually exclusive. It can be all of those. But you know, the number of parallels with with the gospel prologue suggest that the, the metaphors, the images, and the theology of the letter be understood with John's gospel in mind. Therefore, to me, it seems most likely that when he says in the beginning, John is writing about the Word who was the agent of all creation. Because his parallel with the gospel is so close and the gospel is so clear that it's writing about the Word. From the beginning was likely meant to hold more than one meaning. The Word who was with God and who was God, here is also the Word who is the life that was revealed in the man of Jesus. This, These words have got so many layers of meaning. So <clears throat> if we look again at the parallel all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, in the Arche, God created the heavens and the earth. What I think John is really saying, with just a few little words here, he's saying, go back as far as you can imagine, uh, before anything came into being, and what you will find there is the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this gives us a clue as to John's foundational purpose in writing this letter. It is not about creation, but it's about the incarnation. The beginning of Jesus' earthly life is not the beginning of his life. The eternal word became the human Jesus, but there can be no separation between the two. So beginning doesn't merely mean that which comes first. We use the word simply that way, the beginning, the start of something. But but in the Greek, arche, it, it has a much broader meaning. It really refers to the source of something, also known as the origin, by that by which everything begins to be. It's the active cause. It's it's the it's the first place. It's it's the rule. It's it's such a deep, deep word. David Bentley Hart quoted this or translated this verse in this way. What was born from the origin, what we have seen, our hands have touched concerning the logos of life. Raymond Brown, another great commentator, he points out that one of John's meanings is that Jesus himself is the Arche, and he goes to Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Arche, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Folks, I don't want us to get bogged down, but I do want us to learn to, to mine for the gold that's found in every phrase. John would have more typically used the word proton instead of arche, because proton, it meant fixed time, but he used arche. So what's going on? The same word is used in Isaiah 9, 6, for the government shall be upon his shoulders. That word government, amazingly, is arche. This original source shall be upon his shoulders. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, he said this this is a wonderful verse that opens up a deep reality. That the government, the arche, the beginning, shall be upon his shoulders means that, or is referring to prophetically, the cross that Jesus carried on his shoulder. Isn't that amazing? So the cross 
is Christ's source of government. The cross is at the foundation of Arche. It's at the core of everything. John uses Arche to describe the first sign, uh, the first miracle, which he calls one of the signs, uh, at Cana. This beginning of signs, this Arche of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. From the very first words of John's letter, he is being highly suggestive of greater meaning, of something deeper, what the church fathers referred to as the mystery. He calls us from the very beginning of this letter to look beyond the immediate meaning of the words. Well, we've just spent a long time on one word, beginning. Let's move forward to the whole issue of sensory experience. Because now he moves from Jesus' coexistence with the Father into a very strong declaration of his humanity. And how does he do that? By saying, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, what we have touched. Some of you may remember in the, uh, in the introductory lessons, I talked about a method of rhetoric called amplification, which was just the repetition that is used to acquire uh, or to capture uh, attention and to persuade through repetition. That which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon and touched. John is emphasizing both the physicality of the word who is life and the eyewitness knowledge of Jesus as the source of John's testimony. What we have looked at, that's a fascinating word in the Greek, is theomai. And it means, again, more than just looking, it means a calm, continuous contemplation, but also... It means something above and beyond what is merely seen with the eye. Isn't that interesting? John has perceived the true significance for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And he goes beyond what can be seen with the eyes. Folks, we emphasized in the first two episodes that this is the, these three are the last letters and they were written almost at once, but they're, they're, they're the last letters in the New Testament. Thirty years after the other writers had died, the other apostles had died, and John had had 30 years of contemplation and deeper experience in theology, and now we're starting to see that come forth. I just love that word. Looked at, I'll say it again, theomai. It means to see beyond the obvious, to see above what is merely seen with the eye. He's inviting us into something deep. 1 John 4, 12 and 14, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love has been perfected in us. 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. I believe John is saying, yes, we have, we physically see him and we testify, but there's a deeper seeing. Takes me right back to, to Jesus said, lift up your eyes and see in John 4. Um, there's this whole aspect of what are you trying to see? Are you trying to see just what is obvious? Are you trying to see two-dimensionally? Or are you looking for something that's deeper? I, I love that he said to, to the, John's disciples who wanted to follow him in in John chapter 1, he says, he turned and he said, what do you seek? What do you seek? Watch for this. All the way through this study, John is showing us in this letter, just like he did in his gospel, that true perception requires an understanding that goes beyond the physical. We need to learn to perceive with spiritual eyes. When he says, we touched him, 
Again, I think that's a very direct, and, and so many uh, commentators and theologians see this. He's taking us back to his gospel. Really, the pinnacle of John's gospel is chapter 20, not 21, but 20, verses 27 and 28. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And here is that pinnacle verse. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. All of these sensory words are directed uh, to us to connect us with Jesus' physicality. Jesus is not some kind of a spiritual shadow. Remember, he's coming against the secessionists. We talked about that, and we'll be back into that next week. He's, he's not some kind of uh, apparition or, or, or ghost or shadow. He, he is not uh, the one who appeared to be human but really wasn't. He's not the one who the Spirit came down on him at his baptism and left at his crucifixion. Jesus is testifying to his humanity, and that's why all these sensory words. Verse 2, And the life was manifested, and we've seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested in us. Jesus is fully human and fully God. This is about the incarnation. So we're going to take a few minutes talking about the incarnation. This is the underlying theme of uh, his gospel prologue, and it is the underlying theme here of the shorter 1 John letter prologue. John insists that Jesus was and is fully man. That is John's testimony. That's why seen, heard, gazed upon, touched. Just as emphatically, though, John insists that Jesus is the eternal word of life who has always been with the Father. In the Matthew uh, series, we taught you a word, hypostasis. And hypostasis means the coming together of his full humanity and his full divinity. So from the beginning of this letter, John is establishing the truth of the gospel that he had taught his churches. It focuses on what is rather than attacking what is not. We will get into the secessionists again later, but notice in the brilliance of this, he doesn't start out with, I'm really concerned. I've heard that you've had people uh, in your midst who are telling you a false gospel. Be careful. He doesn't do any of that. He focuses exactly on what is. Jesus did not just appear to be human. He was fully human. And, and it takes us back to John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. The Word is God the Creator. I think we would all agree with that. The Word is God the Creator. But now that same Word, without ceasing to be who He eternally is, the eternal Creator, He becomes a creation. This is a paradox that I suspect we could meditate on for a long, long time. This mystery of fully God and fully man uh, carried such truth in tension that the church had continually to struggle and strive to articulate and defend this truth. The doctrine of the incarnation expresses the mystery that Jesus Christ is fully human, fully God. This union of God and man is not merely a moral or a spiritual union, it is a physical union of two natures. So as to make one person, Christ did not set aside his divinity in order to come dwell among us. That is a great mistake. The Nicene Creed says this of Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one being with the Father. So why is this so important? Beyond the fact that it's, it's the foundation in which this whole letter is built upon. 
First of all, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, so that when the Word became flesh, God could never again be understood as an abstract or faceless deity. Secondly, it is vital that we absorb this truth. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is not just one facet of God. God did not become Christ-like. Hear me? God did not become Christ-like. This is who he has been from eternity. That's why he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no aspect of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is not perfectly revealed in who Christ is. He is exactly like the Father, exactly. Hebrews 1 verse 3. This is a great verse. This is a verse for you to meditate on. He is the radiance of his glory, of the Father's glory, the exact expression of his nature, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. The incarnation means that the eternal triune relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the divine dance, has now come to earth. The incarnation is the eternal union of man and God. For all eternity, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is one of us. He became human. He will remain human. For all eternity, there's a man in the Trinity. The disciples touched Jesus before the crucifixion and after the crucifixion. This shows the continuity, the timelessness of who Jesus is. Remember, John is dealing here with a dangerous heresy that came against the true gospel and it kept coming for the the first 300 years. John is not talking about our new life, our rebirth. He is talking about the life of the eternal, which always was and always will be. This eternal life is Jesus Christ. We project it. We think we're talking about heaven. He's using eternal life, much like the synoptic writers use the word kingdom of God. He's talking about this is ultimate life. This is true life. It is forever. And this is what you're invited into. He is talking about the life of the eternal It is Jesus Christ. That's why he writes in verse 2, This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Now let's look at the phrase, word of life. (sighs) Like the gospel, uh, it's, it's the logos of life. And uh, the word is logos. In the beginning was the logos. He is the logos of life, of Zoe. So what does this word mean? We, we, we've kind of made it concrete. We've said, well, logos means the word. But it is so much bigger than that. It includes that, but it's so much bigger. It means, it means the idea the thought behind the spoken word. Uh, it includes, it includes the, the vision, the plan, and the wisdom that inspire the spoken word. This week I'm, I'm reading through the Wisdom of Solomon, one of the, one of the wonderful books in the, in the full Old Testament. And, and I just see Christ everywhere. Paul tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. So the word logos includes that too. Let me give you a quote from David Bentley Hart. Over many centuries, logos has come to mean the mind, the reason, the order, the spirit, the expression, the manifestation, the revelation, as well as original principle. He goes on to say you could fill books with just what Logos means. But he says this, it is both God's manifestation uh, of himself 
and the underlying power creating, sustaining, and governing the cosmos. There was never a time when the word was not. And at the same time, there was a moment when the word appeared. Another terrific theologian, Christopher Bamford, said this, The Son, the Word, Jesus Christ, in himself and in us, is the visibility of the invisible, the knowability of the unknowable. We're getting into some deep waters here. This is certainly beyond propositional truth, isn't it? There's another aspect to the word. It meant not only Jesus, which I think clearly that is the main emphasis of what John is saying, but it also referred to the apostolic proclamation, the gospel that they had heard. So there's these two levels together. And he talks about eternal life. The life was manifested. We have seen, but bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He uses that phrase, eternal life, six times in this letter. He's not talking about some kind of impersonal quality. He's not talking about uh, a destination, about going to heaven. He's talking about the Son of God who was with the Father before his incarnation and in whom eternal life is found. We need to hear this, folks. If we start to go deeply into this journey, we'll, we'll begin to get set free from a small thinking that says the gospel is about going to heaven. It is so much more. This logos that we just unwrapped for five minutes is the life, and this is the eternal life. It, it, it's, it's a quality of life even more than a quantity uh, of life. The word eternal, by the way, aeon, is, it mainly appears in John's gospel and is, in fact, John's way of communicating the kingdom message. But here's something that I want us to get, especially from the time of the Reformation. We've translated the word aeon, because remember, it was written in Greek. It was translated into eternal, and by doing that, it has, it has, its meaning has moved to simply the afterlife, which is a limitation. In fact, if you look carefully, John worked hard through his whole account to explain that Jesus' incarnation had radically altered this life, this life here and now, referring to the quality or caliber of life that comes from relationship with God in the immediate presence. This is aeon zoe. This is eternal life. This, this can best be understood as fullness of life or the God kind of life rather than eternal life. I really challenge us and encourage us to get our thinking shifted on this very phrase. It refers to the, the heavenly sphere rather than the earthly sphere. It, it's as a phrase we often use, heaven now. Jesus brought heaven now. Well, let's move on. Verses 3 and 4 primarily are about fellowship. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you so that your or our joy may be full. So again, John highlights seeing and hearing. And he says, and we declare to you, grammatically, remember this is all one sentence from verse 1. <laughs> we declare finally is the main verb in this sentence. To declare, to proclaim, to announce. 
The proclamation of the gospel is beautiful. That's what I've been thinking about as part of my whole meditation on this passage over the last few weeks. Isaiah 52, 7, how how beautiful are the feet of him uh, who brings good news. And that question that we ask ourselves all the time, especially here at Impact Nations, is our gospel beautiful? How beautiful is our gospel? John, John, it's overflowing from him. It's coming out right now. Like all the apostles, he can't keep quiet about the eternal life-giving word, the Logos. His heart's been captured forever. Now, the life is described in terms of fellowship with the Father and the Son. This is the supernatural source of true fellowship. True Fellowship flows from the Arche, the original source. It flows from the fellowship that is operating within the Godhead, that that divine dance. It's a reflection. The kind of fellowship isn't us trying to get along. It's something supernatural. It's a reflection of the Trinity. It flows from the life of the Trinity We've talked to you before about the word perichoresis, which is this dance, this movement between Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this eternal and infinite joy, and it overflows. This is the life source for fellowship for the church. Now, John is very deliberate in this sentence. He links fellowship with God and with one another. He's saying they're inseparable. You know, in looking for spiritual health, we look for a corporate lifestyle of, of fellowship and, and the, the longing to be together and the joy when we're together. If this is lacking, it's a warning sign. We, if, if we do not have that in our gatherings, whether it's our Sunday gathering, whether it's our house church, whether it's a Bible study, it's, it's a warning. There should be a little bit of a light going off because John is telling us, no, authentic fellowship koinonia flows from this wonderful source. You know, it's so much more than having a common interest. Well, we all believe the same thing or... Or it's so much more than a commitment to getting along. We've got to get along. We've got to have unity. Our fellowship is the outworking of the dynamic movement of God. So it is both natural and spiritual at the same time. And we must never lose our awareness of this. Sadly, we do. Sadly, fellowship breaks apart. Sadly, churches split. Sadly, factions rise up. And it has happened from the beginning. Paul, Paul talks about it, uh, for example, in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, uh, John refers to it somewhat obliquely in 2 John. So, but it's what we must, it comes from not understanding and not living in this Zoe, this eternal life source. It's the joy of oneness. It's the joy of belonging. It's the joy of being in one accord. Book of Acts describes the early church as being in one accord 11 times. Koinonia is mystically, supernaturally created by God as people walk in the light, both with him and with one another, because he is light. We're going to go right into that next week. The bond that brings and keeps the community authentically joined is their common recognition that the eternal life that was with the Father has appeared on earth to be seen, heard, and touched and is in their midst. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has appeared in the flesh. This is the faith that unlocks the reality of eternal life in our midst, in our koinonia. 
Authentic fellowship with God must always lead to both lifestyle and desire for being with brothers and sisters. It's one of the reasons why I love the house church model so much. There's such a family, a familiar kind of structure to it and and life flow. Not structure, just a life flow. So why does John feel so compelled to write this? He says, so that you may have fellowship with us. In uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, I think it's even clearer. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. The experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. John is writing from his great love for the church. He wants to invite everyone into this supernatural common life. What he experiences, he wants for everyone. Folks, let me just pull aside. As we gather, in whatever form, remember that that we are called to be people of the Spirit. That we we are invited into something that is supernatural. Not, you know, I once had someone say to me, well, what's the difference between the church and the drama club I'm part of or the community uh, group I'm in? And I I began, this is years ago, it's got to be 30 years ago, and I began to explain without really having enough words, but this is what I was trying to say. No, this is an organism. There's something living because the breath of God is upon it and continually moving through it. Another point I want to make about koinonia before we move on to the last. Koinonia is translated fellowship, but it is also translated communion. So I just want to give a thought to you. Because it's translated communion, which is a deep word, I've become convinced that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Communion is so much bigger than something we do in remembrance of him. Certainly there's remembrance, but there's something bigger. In the the elements, the breaking the bread, the taking the cup, this communion, we're entering into the great mystery, the early church fathers called it. There is a spiritual communion joining Immersion with the very sense, essence, of the triune God that takes place. That's just a little aside, but I believe it is so important. The last word we want to look at here is joy. It's funny, there's two readings for this verse. If you look at your Bible, some will say these things we write to you that our joy may be full and others that your joy may be full. Both are legitimate. Last week that we saw that John is perhaps the most pastoral of all the New Testament writers. And here we see the heart of a pastor who cannot be completely happy so long as some of his children are not experiencing the full blessing of the gospel. John is echoing Jesus' words here. John 15, 11, Jesus says to John and the others, and John hadn't forgotten all these years later, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. You hear the connection between your and our. John 16, 24, ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. These words from John's gospel, I think, are reminiscent of a a favorite verse of mine in Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Folks, God is truly glorified when we find our joy in him, both individually and corporately. A common experience of joy unites our lives together. The community with Christ at the center is a living, dynamic organism. John's joy comes from his experience and testimony of life with Jesus. The church's continued embrace of his message will complete 
John's joy in knowing his proclamation has not been in vain. So I want to finish it a little differently today. I want to share a little bit, try to find words for what this prologue has been meaning to me over the last couple of months. It's opened things up. The first, of course, is that which was from the beginning. I find myself contemplating what is the beginning. And when I think I've got it, it comes back, the question comes back again, and I go deeper, or I go to an aspect I never thought of. When I contemplate this, it leads me, of course, to eternity. This carries my mind and my heart into not only my future destiny, but a greater sensitivity to the present reality of eternal life, into the realm of God that is not limited by time or space. You know, the church, at least till the 15th century, gave much, much attention into the invisible realm, eternal life in the broadest sense. This is taking me back into that. And, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm opening myself up more and more to this realm of God that is eternal, that is outside of time and space. And I've been thinking, is this what it means to be people of the Spirit? Because certainly Paul's letters call the churches up to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, be people of the Spirit. And I was thinking, is this what a wonderful passage in, in Hebrews that says, but don't you know who you are? You're, you're Mount Zion. You're the heavenly Jerusalem. You've joined with angels, with myriads of angels, etc. He's calling them up. Tatian was a second century theologian, and he said this about this whole issue of the realm of time and space. Our God did not begin to be in time. He alone is without beginning, and he himself is the beginning of all things. The beginning is not about time, and it's not about space. It's about this original creative source of all, which is God. And that's what I've been meditating on. That's what I've been talking with him about. That's what's taking me deeper. The second thing is, of course, this prologue keeps linking me back to maybe my favorite all-time passage, which is John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See the parallels between the, the prologue we looked at today and this? Beginning, Word, life, in the Word, in the Logos. So what this is doing for me these last several weeks is First John's prologue is, is somehow turning the diamond, what St. Augustine called the most sublime words ever penned. First John is turning the diamond of this, these sublime words, sublime words of the prologue. And I'm beginning to see different facets of a prologue that I've been reading and praying and loving for 45 years. And it's shifting. New light, new angles. I'm thinking about the Word. I'm thinking about the original source. I'm thinking about the creator, and therefore the creation. I'm thinking, Lord, you exist outside of time. So what you did, you're doing. What you will do, you're doing. It's outside of time. It is, it's, to quote Thornton Wilder, it's, it's, it's too wonderful for me. 
This is who my Jesus truly is, beyond all I could ever conceive. He's the one who who is more than I could ever conceive, and at the same time, he keeps calling me, keep coming, keep coming. As C.S. Lewis said, further up and further in, keep coming. The third thing I've been thinking a lot about, a lot about, is this word that we looked at, was used twice today, manifested. Lord, you did not just manifest one time in creation that we call the incarnation. You continue to manifest all around me. You continue to show up all around me in people, in situations, in nature and creation. I'm, I'm seeing nature differently than I ever did. This, this prologue is leading me to live with a greater sensitivity to your activity, Lord, a greater expectation. I'm learning to recognize your manifestations and what I see rising up, not because I will it or want it, is a greater thankfulness. And I've been thinking a lot about eternal life. I think about the life of the age to come, aeon. And I'm thinking about the fact that the real me, beyond this flesh, but including this flesh, the real me not only will live forever, but is living right now forever in real time and space, that there is a dimension that I've stepped into the next realm without abandoning this one. And forever, I'm going to be in ultimate, final creation, in perfect fellowship with people and with this wonderful perichoresis, this wonderful dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal dance of joy, of ever-creating, of ever-celebrating, of ever-expanding life. I think about the reality of that eternal life breaking in right now in unexpected ways. These are some of the things I tried to put words to, to kind of open up a bit of my interior journey over the last while as I've spent time in John, First John's prologue. Well, God bless you. I hope you were able to follow me today. It's not narrative. It's uh, it requires us, I think, to do justice to go deep. God bless you, Tim. Will join us in a minute, and we'll have a discussion about this. Amen. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Today's episode is brought to you by The Restoration Conversation. If you are watching this or listening to this, that means that you are our target audience uh, because you're a podcast listener. Uh, and if you didn't know, Impact Nations actually has two podcasts. Uh, you're listening to the Impact Nations podcast. Not a very creative name. Sorry, we came up with it a long time ago. Uh, but we actually now have a second podcast called The Restoration Conversation. And it is hosted by two incredibly powerful women uh, who are just outstanding leaders. Leaders in the Impact Nations family uh, have seen God do incredible things uh, and continue to see God do incredible things through their ministry. Uh, I am speaking, of course, about Annabelle, uh, who you hear us talk about often here. Uh, and uh, I call her mom. You can call her Christina. Um, and they host the Restoration Conversation. And each week, they are exchanging stories about uh, what God is doing to restore lives all around the world. Uh, heartbreaking stories, but also heartwarming stories, encouraging stories. But they also... they 
they draw out passages from Scripture, uh, words of encouragement for each of us, uh, and give us some strategies on how to continue to move forward in ministry. So this week, actually, they are discussing in the episode that was just released this week, they're talking about what to do when it feels like ministry or life should be getting easier, and yet things continue to stay hard or get harder. How do we continue to uh, lean into Jehovah Jireh, the provider? How do we combat Satan's lies about we should just give up and stop or what have you? So it's a really helpful episode. It really encouraged me. I think it's going to encourage you. So I'm actually just going to play like one minute of it just uh, for your enjoyment. Uh, wet your whistle. And my hope is that you'll head to impactnations.com slash podcast, uh, where now you'll see that there are actually two podcasts there. And you can click on the restoration conversation uh, and take in. There's been several episodes released in season one thus far. Uh, or if you are listening on uh, one of your uh, podcast apps or whatever, you can find them at the Restoration Conversation that way, uh, or of course on our YouTube channel as well. Uh, so uh, without further ado, here's uh, just a little glimpse of the Restoration Conversation. So you have this preconceived mind that it has to be happily ever after. It has to be greatness ever after. You know, I had been through the abuse. I had gone to school. I had graduated. So the story was supposed to be beautiful all the way. And then at seven months, I was, you know, I was forced to to, to have a C-section, an emergency C-section, because if I didn't have that, I was going to lose Jaira. Mm-hmm. You know, that is why we named our baby Jaira, Jehovah Jaira, the same way God uh, preserved uh, baby Isaac for mm-hmm. Abraham. Mm-hmm. I feel like God preserved this child for us. Mm-hmm. I really questioned my faith. I, I prayed all my thunderous prayers and it kept, it kept on feeling like they were not being answered as fast as I wanted them to be answered. And, and yet what I didn't see is that God was working something out beautiful in Jaira's life, in my life, and I was not seeing it. I really appreciated that last section of just kind of the the journey you've been on uh, as you've been studying this prologue uh, over the last uh, last few months, because uh, I know you spent a long time going deep on the Gospel of John prologue several years ago. Uh, I think it was season one of this. Podcast, I think it was. It yeah. yeah. So at, that's actually that might be a really cool resource for those who are joining us, uh, who perhaps haven't heard season one. You may want to go back and listen to some of that because I'm sure that there'll be some overlap there as well, uh, as as you were doing the prologue of John's gospel. But it is pretty wild the the overlap between the two. Uh, you talked about manifestation a few minutes ago, that, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit more, uh, if we could, um, because it, it speaks to a couple of the questions I'd already written down. As always, you kind of half-answered the question before I got a chance to ask it, but we're going to come back to it. Um, you you made mention of, and you've said it before, there is a man in the Trinity. Uh, yep. uh, your phrase was, he will remain human. Uh, that was a a rather shocking thought for me when I first heard you talk about that a few years ago. Uh, it makes sense when you think about it. He ascended. He was man when he was ascending. So when did he stop being a man? I suppose he didn't. Um, but it probably it is, was jarring for a few people to hear again today. What's the significance of that? Like, what? How? If we can grasp that reality, okay. how does that change our our reality here? And oh, now? that's a good question. Well, one of the things. Uh, that occurs to me just off the top of my head. If he if he stopped being God, he came down and was man, or even was man and God, mm-hmm. you know, hypostasis, and then he left his humanity behind, then we would have a remarkable 33-year event mm-hmm. that accomplished stuff. But if he came down as man knowing he would always be man, Mm -hmm. that speaks to me of recreation of a whole new reality that didn't stop after 33 years. This comes back to the significance of of the resurrection and resurrection life uh, that you were speaking about last season as well. And and manifestation, you know, he... trying to be accurate with your question but 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 the fact that 
he was manifested and is outside of time. I think he continues to be manifested if we will just pay attention. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I alluded to it briefly, but right up until the late Middle Ages, um, the, the church... The uh, church fathers and mothers, the whole, the whole aligning of the church was toward the invisible, the eternal, the infinite. And we, as we, as we've said in this studio many times, we suffer from a worldview that is acutely materialistic mm-hmm. and sensory, and so the presentation of the gospel and the understanding of the scripture is much more, we're back to propositional truth, much more sensory. And so we're impoverished. Manifestation is the breaking in. Yeah. And he keeps breaking in. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit more about that because you, you talked about this, uh, this Greek word theomai, uh, which is to, it was translated as looked at, I think, or something, mm-hmm. but you, you talked about really the richer meaning of that is looking beyond what we can see, yeah. uh, what we can see with our natural eye. Yep. So how do we, how do we live a life that is perceiving with our spiritual eyes? When we begin to perceive with with our spiritual eyes, what are we going to see? And then finally, as a follow-up to that, how can we include that in how we relate the beauty of the gospel to those who haven't yet mm. discovered well, the beautiful gospel. Three great questions. Um, first of all, we enter into it by learning to enter into it, by pretty continually, quietly, Lord, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Or Lord, is this you? Um, until it starts to become a pattern. And um, and once it starts to become a pattern, give me the second aspect of that again. Uh, well, what are we going to see? Oh, what we're going to see, we're going to see, we're, we're, I, uh, we're going to see with the eyes of the Spirit, mm-hmm. and we're not necessarily going to see angels and stuff. Some people do, I don't. Sure. But what we're going to perceive, because the word really is more about perception, is, oh, look at what you're doing mm. in that person right now. Or look, Lord, I just suddenly felt your presence get really close to me. You know that part of... Uh, the teaching I've done, <clears throat> excuse me, on on moving in the rhythm of the kingdom is connected with that. Sure. It's learning, oh, this is what you're up to right now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, some people may see angels. Um, for me, what I see with the eyes of my spirit is not, oh, yeah, I bet Jesus, it's just like, oh, you're here. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're here. And also, frankly, to see him in others is really important. Yeah. Really, really important. And so then my the final question of that, in terms of how does that change the way we, we relate the beautiful gospel to others? How do we – how does that change the way we're actually sharing the gospel? Oh, boy, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I think that actually you just touched on it a little bit. I, I think when, when we begin to see the Lord moving in others or the Spirit drawing near to others uh, – we can help others recognize what the Spirit's yes. doing, right? Especially for those who don't have language for it. Like, yeah. oh, I feel something. Ah, that's the Holy Spirit. Our, our friend Anarup used to do this with people when he would, uh, they weren't even believers. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, let's just wait for a minute and ask Jesus to show us something. Yeah. And then he said, without fail, people, non-Christians yet, yeah. uh, would say, oh, I had this I saw this tree and this, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he would say, that's the Lord speaking to you. And then he'd take them right to John, my sheep, hear my voice. Yeah. Uh, you know, another another thing that occurs to me is just the way my wife relates to people. Um, <laughs> Bethany often will just, she uh, she's a classic assume the sale type of salesperson. Like she, when she speaks to uh, what Craig would call pre-Christians or non-believers, uh, she She's helping them see God moving in their midst, yes. right? So she will, if they're telling a story, she's like, oh, isn't God good? Like, see what God did to, to line up these circumstances and things like that. And I think helping people, when we begin to recognize God's activity in the world around us, we can then begin to point it out to others. That's a great answer. Yeah. Uh, uh, a couple of just smaller questions, but 
he uses the pronoun we repeatedly in those first three verses. Who's the we? (laughs) I I should have got into that. I almost didn't. I thought, oh, it's going to go too long. There are different... uh, There are basically three different interpretations. One, he is referring to the apostolic tradition. Mm -hmm. We apostles. Yeah. The second one is... It's in it's it's meant to be uh, inclusive. We together we use we. Okay. Yeah. And the third one is it's a mark of his kind of his humility. Just like he doesn't ever say even in his gospel he never mm-hmm. identifies himself properly, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's it's kind of a we is is to be once removed from saying, well, I told you this. Gotcha. Okay. So those are the three main reasons. That's helpful. And then finally, uh, in the beginning, the RK, you quoted the Nicene Creed uh, and referring to uh, Christ being begotten. Begotten is a weird word that we don't use in modern English very often. Can you tell us what's the difference between begotten and made or born created created you know we i haven't talked about this for a long time it's in that john uh, uh john's in, gospel in the prologue yeah. yeah begotten made is something i make separate from me i make a workbench begotten is something that comes out of me mm. it is me okay and that's in the simplest way, that's that's the difference. Okay, good. Uh, all right, that's all I have for this week. Uh, next week, uh, I, I was teasing you earlier about <laughs> we got through four verses today. I'm guessing we'll finish off chapter one next week. Yes, we will. All right. And uh, we might even go into verses one and two of chapter two. I haven't decided all yet. Right. <laughs> uh, folks, thank you so much for being with us. If you have any further questions, if I didn't touch on something that you wanted us to touch on this week, uh, just write to podcast at impactnations.com. Uh, and uh, we will be here next Thursday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, and then that video will live on uh, on YouTube. So uh, be sure to hit subscribe, hit the little bell so you get notified uh, so that you can be with us when we're online. Uh, if you you would rather just get that audio delivered directly to your device so you can listen to it on your way to work or what have you, uh, you can do that uh, at uh, impactnations.com slash podcast. There's a whole bunch of buttons there that'll link you right to your uh, favorite podcast app or just use that app and search Impact Nations Podcast. You will find us. Hey, leave us a review there too. That's always really helpful. Um, Thanks again for being here and we'll see you guys again next week. Bye-bye.